Good day from Charlotte. I'm James Brierton. Northrop Grumman and NASA will launch a resupply mission to the International Space Station early Sunday morning. If conditions are right where you live, there's a decent chance you might be able to see a streak in the sky that is the rocket as it ascends up into space. It is set to launch from the Wallops Launch Facility in Virginia at 5.50 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Yes, at Standard Time, meaning after we change the clocks back. I will have live coverage joined by WCNC's Brittany Van Voorhees starting at 5.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on early Sunday morning. So don't forget to set your alarms and change your clocks so you can join us for live coverage. The weather at the launch facility looks to be 80% favorable. So from a weather standpoint, things are looking good in Virginia. Whether or not we'll have scattered clouds where you are in the Carolinas, that is yet to be seen. So hopefully you'll be able to join us for that live coverage, which begins at 5.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time after we change the clocks back on the Carolina Weather Group YouTube channel. Officials held a pre-launch briefing Saturday to discuss final preparations and take questions from reporters. Here's that audio. I'm Laura Bleacher from NASA's Office of Communications. Thank you for joining us for today's pre-launch news conference for Northrop Grumman's 18th Commercial Resupply Services mission to the International Space Station. The Antares rocket with the Cygnus spacecraft atop is targeted for liftoff tomorrow, Sunday, November 6th, from the Mid-Atlantic Regional Spaceport's Pad A at NASA's Wallops Flight Facility on Wallops Island. A five-minute launch window will open at 5.50 a.m., Eastern Standard Time. Northrop Grumman is scheduled to deliver more than 8,200 pounds of cargo to the orbiting laboratory, including critical supplies to directly support dozens of the more than 250 science and research investigations that will occur during Expedition 68. Here to talk with us about the mission and tomorrow's launch are Joel Montalbano, International Space Station Program Manager. Heidi Paris, Associate Program Scientist for the International Space Station. Steve Krein, Vice President, Civil and Commercial Space, Northrop Grumman. Kurt Eberly, Director, Space Launch Programs, Northrop Grumman. Ted Mercer, CEO and Executive Director, Virginia Commercial Spaceflight Authority. And Jeff Reddish, Wallops Range Chief. Our speakers will each provide opening remarks, then we'll move to questions from reporters in the room, on the phone, and via hashtag AskNASA on social media. To enter the question queue on the phone, please use star one. To start, we'll hear from Joel Montalbano. International Space Station Program Manager. Joel. Hey, thank you, Laura. It is great to be back here. You know, it's been uh, two and a half years since we've had a Northrop Grumman Cygnus uh, discussion here in this room. So to see your smiling faces and then to do it on the eve of a launch is, is especially more exciting. So thank you guys for being here. Uh, we're excited, just like you are, to have another mission to the International Space Station. Yesterday, we completed the launch readiness review. The launch readiness review um, is the final management meeting where we review all the items ready for launch. Uh, you can tell by the fact that we lasted on about an hour and a half or so, but 
all the work that was done to get us ready for this mission, it was clear that the teams are ready. Um, at the end of the meeting, the team pulled go, and uh, we're preparing for the launch tomorrow morning. Uh, speaking about launch tomorrow morning, so to give you some times, 5.50 Eastern time. So that's after the time change, so don't forget the time change, 5.50 Eastern. Um, about 48 hours later, we'll have a capture of the vehicle by astronaut Nicole Mann. So 48 hours uh, early Monday morning, and we'll have to do the birthing activities, some leak checks, and we expect to get the hatch open just after 1 p.m. Eastern on Tuesday. This vehicle will be carrying approximately 8,200 pounds of hardware, including the support structure for the third set of new solar arrays that we're augmenting on board the International Space Station, a number of utilization and research hardware items that Heidi will talk to you about, some technology demonstration hardware that we need for exploration, as well as some low Earth orbit commercialization hardware. As I said, Nicole will be primed for capture. Josh will be her backup. Uh, looking forward after this, we have a spacewalk. We have three spacewalks, three U.S. spacewalks remaining for the end of the year. Uh, the first of those three will be November 15th with Josh and Frank going outside. And uh, Monday at uh, 2 p.m. is that Eastern, I believe we'll have the, uh, the press brief for those EVAs. Uh, this vehicle will stay berthed for approximately three months. So we're looking at early January where we go ahead and release that vehicle. Um, as far as the preparations, the team's ready to go. I want to give a huge thanks to the Northrop Grumman team, the Virginia Space team, the Wallops team, and the ISS team, the international partners. We are ready for this mission. We're excited to have this mission. And with that, I'll hand it over to Heidi. All right. Thanks, Joel. Um, and thank you, everybody, for being here today. Um, I get the privilege of talking with you just a little bit about our research program on board the International Space Station, um, and especially some of the research that's launching on the NG-18 vehicle this weekend. Um, so this is a very exciting time um, for research on board the International Space Station. You know, every new vehicle that launches is bringing up not only new research, but also additional capabilities that help us expand um, both the variety and the depth of research that we're able to support on board the space station. You know, and our research team, our research community is really taking advantage of those opportunities in order to study their science in a new way, a way they can only study in an orbiting laboratory like the International Space Station. Um, to date, we've had uh, well over about 3,000 different investigations done on board the station. Um, each of those investigations is teaching us something about how to improve our lives on Earth, um, as well as how to not only survive, but to thrive as we continue to explore further into space. Um, and it's exciting to realize that each of these new investigations that comes up um, brings with it the possibility of discoveries that can impact our lives in big ways. Um, one of the very recent unexpected discoveries we had on board the International Space Station was with the EMIT investigation. So the primary goal of this investigation is to map the composition of the Earth's mineral dust sources. Um, but in the very few months that it's been taking data, this research team has realized that in addition to its primary goal, it can also be used to detect super emitters of methane, which is a very potent greenhouse gas. You know, so this finding opens up a whole new avenue for us to explore to help understand how the Earth's ecosystem is changing over time and how those changes are dependent on each other. 
Um, so I want to talk now a little bit about the research coming up on NG18. Uh, we have hardware and samples that are supporting right around 40 different investigations. Um, about half of those are brand new on this flight. Um, I do have a, a quick video I want to show that gives just a few highlights of the research um, that will be coming up on NG18. So you can see lots of great research coming up on NG18. Um, I was, as I was looking over the whole complement of research on this flight, um, a couple of things jumped out at me. First one is that um, there are a lot of firsts in terms of research on this flight. You know, so the first um, attempt to categorize the very unique dynamics involved with catastrophic mud flows. Um, one of the first studies to look into how microgravity impacts ovarian function. Uh, also, as a part of the BIRDS-5 project, this is gonna be, uh, these are going to be the first satellites um, built and designed by the countries of Uganda and Zimbabwe. And that's data that will be provided to them that will be useful and that they would not normally access to, but it also provides a foundation to build sp future spaceflight activities off of. Um, and the second thing I noticed is that we have a lot of investigations that are building upon past successes and past results in the field in order to expand that area of research. Um, so biofabrication facility is one example. Uh, this is, is, um, has flown before, it'll be flying a second time on NG-18, and they have um, modified and enhanced the capabilities of this facility in order to be able to um, enhance what it's able to do on orbit. Um, also, we have Plant Habitat 03, which is um, taking advantage of previous studies into plant epigenetics um, in order to understand how plants adapt in a second generation of spaceflight. Um, the last thing I wanted to mention, which is what these pictures cover, um, is uh, one of our longest-running educational activities on board the International Space Station. It's called Sally Ride EarthCam. EarthCam stands for Earth Knowledge Acquired by Middle School Students. Um, so, of course, this flight is named in honor of Sally Ride, um, which I think Steve will talk a bit more about in a minute. 
Um, but she was instrumental in um, spearheading this investigation and making it a reality from even the beginning of the ISS program. So this investigation teaches students about um, geography and weather patterns and spacecraft orbits. And then they use that knowledge to take pictures of specific regions on Earth using a camera that's mounted on board the International Space Station. Um, very impactful investigation. They've had um, well over a million students participate since the beginning of that program. Um, so, like I said, lots of great stuff coming up on NG18. Um, we are very excited to get started um, and excited to see what discoveries come out of this research. Um, Steve, over to you. Oh, great. Uh, thanks, Heidi. And just wanted to echo Joel's sentiments. It's great to be back here at Wallops. It's been a long time, and it's really uh, exciting to be back. On behalf of Northrop Grumman, I'd like to, uh, to welcome you all to the NG18 launch. Uh, excited for tomorrow. And just wanted to thank our, our mission partners, NASA, Virginia Space, and all the folks at Wallops Flight Facility for all the hard work that's going into making uh, tomorrow a uh, highly successful mission. And also a very special thanks to all the Northrop Grumman folks out there and the ones on the pad uh, working the final late load, which is now complete, and of course uh, the preparations for tomorrow's uh, successful mission execution and implementation. Uh, this will be NG-18, will be our 18th uh, cargo resupply mission in 2011. Again, a great success record there of the highly uh, reliable Cygnus vehicle. Uh, this is an interesting configuration. The NG-18 uh, launch vehicle being the same ma mass-optimized configuration, a lot of the secondary structure and peripherals have been removed to maximize the cargo load and also the fuel load to really uh, get the maximum complement of supplies, science experiments, and equipment uh, to the space station. I think we're at uh, 8,265 pounds, if I'm not mistaken, which is one pound of margin. Uh, so we uh, really, really topped it off. And also we will be uh, maximizing the fuel load uh, to, to really allow for contingencies as required and also for operational maneuvers uh, on station to support our, our mission uh, should the customer choose to exercise that. Um, Cygnus is also, as you know, a multi-function uh, multi uh, vehicle. As Heidi mentioned, a lot of science on there. Uh, also in addition to the cargo, um, it's a great time this time of year for, uh, for uh, fall cleaning. And at the end we'll be disposing of, of trash, of course, before re-entry at the end of the mission timeline. Uh, also, uh, we mentioned uh, the late load is now complete, uh, which is exciting. And this late load capability is really instrumental in getting time-sensitive materials to station and also in providing astronauts uh, perishable food such as fresh fruit and the special uh, treat on this mission, uh, popsicles, which is exciting. Uh, hopefully it's a rainbow, uh, rainbow assortment so everyone gets their favorite flavor, but we'll leave that to the, uh, to the folks. Uh, Kurt's going to uh, speak here just uh, momentarily, but we're just incredibly proud of the work that's gone in from Northrop Grumman to get where we are today. And I'll just give a, a quick view. I, don't, I know Joel touched on it uh, before, but the mission timeline should be really straightforward this time. Uh, liftoff will give us a, a, a perfect insertion, of course, from Antares. Uh, about nine minutes after liftoff, we'll separate. Uh, we'll you know, do some comm uh, acquisitions and some burns to, to make sure the orbit's correct. And then really the big milestone will be about three hours after launch. We'll be uh, deploying the solar arrays, multi-stage deployment. It'll take about half an hour. Then we'll have full power in the vehicle. Uh, do some burns to get to the uh, four kilometer uh, uh, point below the station. The following day, we'll do additional burns to get to the 30 uh, meter acquisition point, as Joel mentioned. Uh, do the, the, uh, the robotic arm grapple, earthing operations and ingress as shortly as we can thereafter. Uh, so that'll, that'll really uh, finish the initial phase of the mission, then on to unload, uh, you know, trash uh, load, and then also um, disposals we talked about. Uh, you know, as Heidi mentioned, uh, we are just um, incredibly excited. It's a tradition of Northrop to name 
each mission after uh, someone's really did it, made a huge contribution to human spaceflight and exploration. And this mission will be named after um, Dr. Sally Ride, as you've all heard. Uh, Sally was really a true space pioneer and also a tireless advocate for improving STEM literacy for children, especially young girls. And I'm just going to give a quick overview. She had such a storied career, but I'll just hit some highlights. Uh, in 1978, Dr. Ride became one of 38 astronaut candidates selected more, from more than 8,000 folks uh, to join an astronaut uh, cadre number eight. She served as the first female Capcom, uh, the astronaut that talks to the uh, astronauts' orbit in their spacecraft, a first, uh, another first for her again. In 1983, she flew on SDS-7, uh, the Space uh, Shuttle Challenger's second mission, and then she flew on the SDS-41G mission. Uh, after retirement, uh, Dr. Ride and her partner, Tam O'Shaughnessy, uh, founded the Sally Ride Science Foundation, a nonprofit aimed at improving STEM literacy for children. And she's really been an inspiration for millions. And I'll just share a quick story. Uh, when we announced the, uh, the naming, I actually, actually was in the room uh, with Joel down at Johnson Space Center. And uh, there were a number of, of senior female engineers, uh, deputy program manager, other folks in the room. And to see their faces when we named, um, we announced it, uh, number one. And then they, they shared stories about uh, when they were growing up that they had posters of, of Dr. Ride uh, in their bedrooms as, as an inspiration. So just to see how that resonated with the team, number one, and to, to show uh, the enormous amount of respect uh, at the professional level and all the people she inspired is really a great testament to her, to her legacy. And of course, uh, finally, Dr. Ride was posthumously the recipient of the Presidential Medal of uh, Freedom in 2013, and she is just a true American hero, and we couldn't be prouder uh, to name this mission after her. I've got one final note before we go to the video, uh, kind of a heartwarming uh, uh, public interest story. Uh, there's a elementary school in South Los Angeles, the Sally Ride Elementary School, was, which was unanimously named the vote in the community. And they have given us a flag, which I think is, was up on the screen just a, a moment ago. Uh, and uh, a certificate with the flag was signed by 402 of the uh, students and staff. And uh, although we were really tight on the, uh, the mass load, as I, I mentioned before, we were able to get the flag on the, uh, on the vehicle and it will be going up and then returning shortly thereafter. So uh, we are incredibly excited to make that happen for the, for the team. And I'd like to just give a shout out to the students at uh, Sally, uh, Sally Ride Elementary School, known as the Mighty Astronauts, by the way, which is, which is pretty neat, uh, and have them reach for the stars. Uh, and, and again, their accomplishments would just be an additional contribution to Sally's legacy as they uh, progress through their careers. So again, we are incredibly proud of Northrop Grumman for this launch, and I'd like to maybe turn your attention to a quick video of uh, how we're going to execute this successfully uh, tomorrow morning at ODARC 100.
right. Hello, everybody. Kurt Everly here, Space Launch Director. And uh, I really like that video because it really highlights uh, the employees that are behind this system and, uh, and the employees that produce the hardware for the launch vehicle back in Chandler, Arizona, largely, and then uh, on the spacecraft side in Dulles, Virginia. And so those are the people uh, that really you know, deliver the hardware that, that the folks here locally at Wallops get to, get to put together. So, and we were actually able to get some of them to come out and see the launch this time, folks that are not really part of the program, but they are producing the parts and mining the store and keeping the doors open. So we're really happy to have them here uh, to see the launch. So welcome, you guys. All right. So. Uh, First of all, back uh, last launch was NG17 in February. Everything went really well. Uh, Post-launch data review was right on the money. Um, that was the sixth launch of the 230-plus configuration of Antares, which we developed specifically to meet the needs of the Cirrus 2 contract. Uh, and so what are those needs? We, we offered some upgrades for 230-plus. The first was more mass to orbit, so we upsized uh, the ability to carry cargo. The second was the 24-hour final cargo load, which happened just this morning. You saw the pictures of how we do that with the mobile clean room over the front of the rocket while it's down horizontal. So that's really key for, for NASA to be able to load a lot of cargo into Cygnus right there 24 hours before, before liftoff. The final thing is uh, cargo mass flexibility. So let's say an experiment doesn't go well or something has to be pulled off, they can do that at the 24-hour mark, and then we just uh, we update the amount of mass on board, and then our guidance is able to adapt to that and get us to the right, right location anyway. So for NG18, we've, we've also made some improvements, and we've increased the mass to orbit by 70 kilograms from 8,050 to 8,120 which has allowed us to carry a little more cargo, about 20 kilograms more cargo for NASA. And obviously, they're taking full advantage of that by making us completely full here. That's great. And so this will be the seventh launch of the 230-plus configuration on Cirrus 2. It's been a really smooth integration flow so far, and things are going really well. Uh, beautiful weather. Thank you for that, Jeff. Um, <laughs> And so I would, I would like to thank uh, our Virginia Space partners who, uh, who manage the spaceport. It's not easy to keep a complicated facility working right next to a, um, a salt ocean. And to, and to Jeff and his range team for, uh, for providing the range support that we rely on for these launches. So just a quick recap of the last week. On, on Tuesday, we had the dress rehearsal where we tortured the launch team uh, with green cards and off-nominal situations just to make sure they can work through it. On Wednesday, we rolled the vehicle out to the pad, and we went uh, vertical. Uh, the next day, on Thursday, we do our combined systems test. We turn on all the systems and make sure everything's working well, and all the communication links back to the range are good. After that, we went back down horizontal Thursday night, and really Friday was, a, was a, a margin day in case we had weather or other issues. And so that brought us to this morning where the late, the late load was, or the final load was at uh, 5.50 a.m. All right, so tomorrow morning, or late tonight, um, after we will go vertical uh, around midday this afternoon, uh, we will connect all the uh, commodity lines back up, we'll do some leak checks, and then we'll do final arming. Our teams will report on console five and a half hours before uh, L0. And L0 is 5.50 a.m. and 16 seconds. That's the open of a five-minute window target the opening of the window. Now, we will start the countdown on uh, daylight savings time, and we will launch on standard time. And so my team has been wondering, how, what time do I need to wake up and get to the, so, so we've ordered the launch team to actually sleep on console. So there's not going to be any confusion. So, that's our solution. I'm, it's going to work really well. All right. Uh, once we lift off, it's a quick nine minutes to orbit, and then we, we'll separate Cygnus, and then Steve's teams take over. And with that, I'll turn it over to Ted Mercer from Virginia Space. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Kurt. But, but before I get into these comments, I've got to ask a question. 
you, you can't just sit there and not participate. So I've got to ask a question uh, of you. Can you feel it? Can you feel it? Can you feel that excitement? Let me see the hands, the excitement that's exuding from this panel. Can you feel it? Absolutely. We're, we're loving it. The excitement and the adrenaline is pumping, ladies and gentlemen, and we're looking forward to 0550 tomorrow morning. So you've heard uh, in the comments earlier from my colleagues about the business end of this mission. You've heard about the rocket. You've heard about Cygnus. You've heard about the payload the experiments, the science that's going to go up uh, to the space station. That's all the business end of this. But how do you get it there? That's where we come in, right? You gotta have a spaceport to get it there. And that's who we are. Where you can liken us to uh, what you might imagine uh, an airport, right? When airlines fly into an airport, that airport is there to support them getting in and getting out and getting you passengers where you need to go safely. That's what we do. Only we do it from the perspective of putting satellites in orbit and launching rockets. So that's who we are. We're only two spaceports that, uh, that resupply the International Space Station. Only two. It's us and the Cape. That's it. So I like to say that our, I know our astronaut brethren like the fact that we're here doing that because when they run out of supplies, they can't run to the corner 7-Eleven and replenish. <laughs> That's up to us to do it. Our partnership with Northrop Grumman, NASA, uh, with, our, with our public partnership, public-private partnerships, are key to the success of this model for the Mid-Atlantic Regional Spaceport. We are a unique spaceport in that way. No other model in the United States out of the other four major spaceports, and all spaceports are not the same, out of the four major spaceports, that model is unique. But it's through that partnership that allows it to work and work so effectively. You've heard a lot about the importance of assured access to space for this nation, not just the Commonwealth, for this nation. We're critical to that. Remember that there are only four spaceports in the United States that can do vertical lift to orbit for tens of thousands of pounds. It's only four. We guarantee assured access to space for the nation in what we do. We're also an economic engine. The partnerships that we provide, the additional capability that comes to launch from Mars brings with it business opportunities and economic growth for the region. That's what the Commonwealth wants us doing. So all of that combined is what allows us to support all of the business end that you've heard about already. I'll conclude with go NG18, go Cygnus. Jeff, over to you. Well, I'm very excited. I think I'm almost finished with that. <laughs> well, welcome to Wallops. Welcome to this great afternoon. Um, Kurt, I did put this reservation in for this week for this weather, so you're welcome. No problem. The weather, weather is part of our range, so uh, we certainly put these uh, forecasts in and uh, make that happen. But from a range standpoint, we are very ready to launch. We, um, 
We control all the systems, the tracking, the um, telemetry, and the command systems here at Wallops. We have a downrange base in um, Bermuda, so that's our downrange site. We've tested between Bermuda and Wallops. We tested between Bermuda, Wallops, and the the space, uh, the um, the vehicle. All testing went very well. Of course, you have a few hiccups here and there that you got to work out, and uh, we've done that extremely well. We've tested multiple days over the last several weeks. We've been very busy on the range for months. Uh, when cargo came in, uh, we support a very broad diversity of things that happen on the range for NG and Mars. And I'm very excited that uh, we get this, excuse me, we get this opportunity with Mars and uh, Northrop Grumman to do that to support our nation. And uh, one trivia question I'll also add with um, what Tid was referring to was NASA the only owned NASA space uh, space launch uh, facility is Wallops. So that's a trivia question. I don't think many people know, but the only NASA owned space facility is right here at Wallops. So we we are in. in uh, uh, we work with Ted and his group here with Mars and Northrop Grumman, and we, we just enjoy the work, and we're very excited to do it. So as I said, the range is ready. We've, we've frozen configuration going into tomorrow or tonight into tomorrow. We're opening up our count. We come in early. We're opening up our count tonight around uh, 10, 30, 11 o'clock, and we'll be counting through the night. So all looks good for a, a great launch. Um, We've put the reservations and confirmed reservations for all of our hazard areas. All our op areas are good to go. So um, about L minus 930, we, we open our count. Um, NG gets on console about L minus 430, somewhere around there. So we, we put in a, a, a multiple hours getting our range together so that we can support uh, NG when they come on console and turn their vehicle on all our support goes to them so we come in very early to to, to certify and ensure our systems are ready um, lastly the weather let's look at the weather this is the most exciting part um, you can't get any better than this weather right now the beautiful eastern shore of Virginia with the, the fall leaves and the we've got this uh, Indian summer going on that I don't think the weather can get any better but but looking here um, our weather office is right down the hall from me. So I go down to the weather office every day, and it's kind of a love-hate relationship because I want to go in and help them forecast, and they kick me out of the office pretty quickly. So today, it's kind of ironic. I get to give the forecast, and they're not here. So um, anyway, uh, can you put that slide back up, please? Um, the weather is great. We've got an 80% chance of launching. If you look at this, um, this um, chart, it says probability of violation of 20%. Well. That's another argument I have with weather. I said, why don't you have the probability of a successful launch or, or having a launch of 80%? That sounds a lot better than a violation of 20%. So we have a, a, a probability of 80% to make this launch. Uh, the only concern is with, with the weather, as, as seasons change here on the eastern shore, we have the hot and cold mixture, and we, we, we have a lot of low clouds uh, when it before the sun comes up. So one of our concerns is that the fog, I don't know if you guys were up earlier, but you see a lot of fog out there. So uh, we're, we're a little concerned with the fog, but uh, hopefully that'll, with a little bit of breeze and, uh, and, and some, some uh, help from mother nature, we'll, uh, we'll be able to clear, clear our pass up and uh, be able to launch this thing. So with that said, I'm done. The range is, is, is go. We're, um, Go Antares, go Cygnus. We're, we're excited and ready, ready for this launch. Thank you. Great, thank you all. Now we'll take your questions. For those of you in the room, please raise your hand to be handed a microphone. We'll also take questions from reporters on the phone and via hashtag 
Ask NASA on social media. To enter into the question queue on the phone, please use star one. Jeff Faust, Space News. Uh, two questions for Kurt. This is the first Antares launch since uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. How has that affected the launch preparations for this mission? And two, you mentioned you've got a little extra payload performance, master orbit on this, about, I think you said 70 kilograms. Uh, what did you do to uh, get that additional payload capacity? Yeah, uh, thank you for that. Yeah, really, things have been unchanged. You know, we do all the work on the uh, on all the hardware, all of our techs here, and we had all the hardware here prior to the launch of NG17 for NG18 and NG19 missions. So, so really, it's been unaffected. Um, we've uh, we've been in communication with our suppliers, and uh, it's been situation normal uh, for the processing. Um, with regard to the 70 kilograms, we didn't actually change any hardware. Uh, what we did was we took the six flights of data that we had. Uh, accumulated, and uh, we refined the models of the propulsion performance for stage one and stage two, and we took some of the conservatism out, and now that we had all that flight data to look at. And so uh, by taking that conservatism out, we aimed a little higher, and we were able to, to offer a little bit more performance, and we were able to offer that back when we bid on the, on the two missions here, the two missions being NG-18 and 19. Yes, uh, my name is Brent Houston from Tacoma Voice. This, call, this uh, question is for Mr. Eberly, talking about mass to orbit, thinking of um, uh, Ares uh, two, uh, 330. I was reading about that the other day, about the, uh, after the eighth launch goes in, 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 um, in the spring for Ares 230. I was reading that uh, that will be nearly twice as powerful as the current 230 uh, iteration which means you'll need more propellant, which means you'll need a bigger HIF, which means a lot of things, and plus mass to orbit. I, th I think you're referring to the Antares 330. Oh, sorry. Yeah. The Antares Yes. Yes, so it's really excited about the development project we've, we've announced just this past August, which is to develop a new first stage, a domestically sourced first stage uh, from Firefly Aerospace which is a company uh, headquartered in Texas. Uh, you may know them because they launch a small rocket called Alpha, and they just had a successful uh, second flight of Alpha that made it to orbit recently. So uh, we have uh, struck an agreement with them. We are going to partner on developing a new first stage. And you're right, it's bigger than the current first stage, and that's going to give us more capability. But it's not quite double. It's We're going to go from around, I, I said, about 8,100 kilograms now mass to orbit. We're going to go up to 10,500 kilograms. Uh, and the way we're going to do that, the first stage is going to be a little longer, but it's also going to be a bigger diameter, and it's going to have uh, uh, rocket engines that they are going to develop for us underneath it, uh, seven Miranda rocket engines. Uh, so uh, your comment about the HIF, we took into account the, the size of the HIF, um, and we made sure that we stayed within the physical limitations of the HIF, and then we also have some constraints out at the pad on the rocket uh, fitting within the system that pushes the vehicle up to vertical. And we wanted to make sure that we fit within that, those key pieces of infrastructure because they're really long lead and they were hard to develop in the first place back in the 20, early 2010s timeframe. So, so yeah, we're really excited about that partnership. Um, uh, that's slated to debut in, in, to be ready to launch in late 24. Um, uh, and, and that's the quickest way to get uh, so just replacing the first stage, we're going to continue to fly the same second stage fairing and, and avionics and so forth. 
And we think that's the quickest way to get launches back here to Virginia and start flying these CRS missions back here in Virginia with the You're talking about also the medium, medium lift vehicle after that. So how long will you be using um, the 330 configuration? Yep, good question. We're, we're planning on three flights at least. Um, and then we would, uh, so after we develop that first stage, like I mentioned, that's the quickest way to get flying back here with that configuration. Uh, we would then embark on a second stage development with Firefly. Uh, and a larger fairing, and we're calling that the medium launch vehicle right now. We've got a naming contest internal to the company, and we're looking for really good names from our, from our employees. I'm sure they're going to come up with them, but that is slated for late 2025 debut uh, of what we're calling just the medium launch vehicle right now. Uh, we're really excited about it. It's going to have, you know, uh, having a liquid first and a liquid second is going to give us more capability to higher altitudes. It's going to allow us to have more precise orbit injection. Which is not super critical for these CRS missions because uh, Cygnus is very capable and maneuvers around all on its own uh, plenty well. But for, for some of the other satellite launch type missions, it's, it's, uh, we require to have a more precise injection than we can get with a solid stage as the last stage of the rocket. Thank you. We'll now go to the phone. We'll take a question from Marcia Smith from Space Policy Online. Uh, thanks so much for taking my question. I don't know if this is for Joel or Heidi. But it has to do with the status of the JEDI experiment. I gather that uh, there's either a proposal or an agreement to extend how long that's going to be up there. Could you sort of give us an update on that? And more broadly, uh, how are you doing in terms of people wanting to put their experiments up on ISS? Are you getting into a crunch because there are so many customers spots for them? Yeah, that's a great question, and I can take that. Um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, this is a very exciting time for research, and part of that is because um, we do have so many different investigators and so many different um, entities that want to take advantage of using the International Space Station. Um, one of the unique aspects of the ISS, in addition to um, the sustained microgravity environment and the exposure to um, the unique uh, environment in, in, um, in space, is that we also have a platform that allows us to see, um, to see both down onto the Earth as, as well as up into space. Um, we have a suite of investigations on board that are currently looking down and studying how the Earth's ecosystem is changing. I think there are about seven on orbit right now. Um, and they're doing it in different ways. Um, but the interesting thing is that, that the nature of these observations is very complementary. And so um, even though the investigators are taking data for their primary purpose, they're able to see how um, changes in one area will impact changes in another area. So it gives us a really great um, opportunity to see, um, you know, the interdependencies and how the Earth is changing overall. Um, so I would say every investigation comes in with an expected lifetime, and um, and that is the expected lifetime they need to complete their primary science objectives. Um, sometimes uh, science investigations request to stay longer, and as long as there's no impact with um, other investigations that are currently on orbit, um, usually that's able to be accommodated. Um, but in all cases, those requests are reviewed to make sure that all of our science sponsors who want to send up research are given the opportunity within the bounds that are allowed. Um, so in terms of the JEDI investigation, um, the requests that come in are reviewed by the right folks within NASA, um, and that includes boards that include all of our different science sponsors um, to make sure everybody is able to, to get the science that they need without impacting other investigations. Great, thank you. We'll now take a question from social media. Retraction podcast. 
Is it on? We're good? Cool. Retraction Podcast from Twitter asks, will the plants being grown in PHO3 inform the viability of growing all plants in space or only those related to the plants used in the experiment? Okay, I can take that one too. Um, so plant habitat O3 is um, studying what we call a model organism plant. So this is a plant that um, you know, has characteristics that are very indicative of other plants. So studying this one plant can tell us a lot about um, how other plants work as well. Um, so in that way, you know, the, the studies that we do on plant habitat O3 will have um, some ability to inform uh, the, the growth of, of all different plant species. Great, thank you. Uh, gentleman in the back, please, in the room. Two questions. Uh, first one, Peter Coles, uh, WCPC. Grumman, um, Cygnus is known for its duration. How long is it going to be on orbit after it leaves the ISS? And what post-ISS post missions does it have? And for Mars, uh, with the increase of busyness in the spaceport, what are you guys looking forward to in the next couple of years with the new clients coming on, the new public partnerships and private partnerships coming on? Yeah, maybe I'll take the first one. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, because uh, as I mentioned during the intro, we have really optimized the, the cargo and fuel load. There really won't be any secondary missions. So after uh, after we load up the uh, the trash complement, we'll really just uh, you know linger a little bit, then do the reentry sequence and, and control burn thereafter. Over to you. Yep. All right, thank you. And in terms of uh, Mars, we're looking for what what appears to be exponential growth uh, in the next uh, three three to five years uh, of uh, launch activity in our manifest out of Mars. We're growing that quickly. We expect to see that growth uh, begin to uptick significantly as recently as next year, 2023. Alan Williams with uh, Zog43. Uh, a couple of questions about the uh, launch itself tomorrow. Uh, assuming good visibility, uh, do we have any idea um, whether or not the plume from the first stage is going to be visible at all as it's going downrange and starts being hit by the sun. And second, could we expect to have any kind of uh, fluorescence from the, uh, the solid propellants on the second stage? Yes, I, I, I think the uh, timing is just, it could be really good for the, those kind of effects, yes. And, and the solid the solid rocket motor plume does have some uh, some aluminum particulate in it that can uh, that can really reflect the light. So yeah, uh, it could happen. Hopefully, we'll get some really great conditions tomorrow and see that kind of effect. Yep, we'll be right you know before sunrise. Thank you. We'll now take another question from social media. Steve Hammer from Facebook asks: Will Cygnus be used to boost the orbit of the ISS? The answer is yes. Our plan is to, uh, we have the capability for this vehicle, and so we'd like to use it to reboost like we did with the, the last uh, Cygnus spacecraft. Our plan going forward to have is that capability on all the Cygnus spacecraft and, and complement the, the on-orbit partnership with a reboost capability. Gentlemen in the back, please. Scott Holmes from newsplusnotes.com. And before I came here, one of our younger readers asked me to um, ask this question. His name is Logan. And since he's underage, I'm not going <laughs> to 
go any farther than that. But he wanted to know what the advantages were of resupplying the space station from Virginia as opposed to Florida. I can start and then I'll hand it over to you guys. Uh, good question, Logan. Um, thank you for, for paying attention to our space program. One of the coolest things about Wallops is uh, you're generally always number one on the runway. Um, and so we, we love coming out of Wallops. Uh, working with uh, Virginia Space, the Northrop team, and, and the Wallops team here is just an awesome partnership. And then to come here, they take great care of us. They take great care of the supplies we bring to the International Space Station. We're able to use the community. We use the, the community to fly fresh fruit. And so we're flying some fresh fruit on this vehicle that's coming from this community. Uh, it's just an awesome partnership that we have. And so from my standpoint, uh, number one on the runway is always a cool thing. <laughs> yeah, and Logan, uh, this is Kurt. I'll talk about uh, some analysis we did on deciding where to launch this rocket to get to the space station. And the space station is in a circular orbit around the Earth. And in an orbit plane, it's inclined 51.6 degrees to the equator. So if you can imagine that, it's going around the Earth, you know, kind of at an angle to the to the equator. Uh, and so back in, I think it was 2008, we did a bunch of analysis. We were able to, we were able to do these uh, simulations with computers that, that model how the rocket is going to fly through the air. And so we did some comparisons from launching from Florida versus launching from Virginia. And we found that you could get the same amount of performance from Wallops as you would get from, from Florida to that orbit plane of 51 degrees inclination to get to the space station. So uh, in terms of performance of the station, it doesn't really matter whether you launch from, from uh, Virginia or from Florida. Yeah, I'll just add one thing. There's also a pizza truck with a pizza named after the Antares launch vehicle, so we uh, have a lot of support locally. <laughs> Great, thank you. That's a good point. Let's go to the gentleman there in the middle, please. Yeah, yes, this is J.D. Taylor with USA in Space. For Northrop Grumman, uh, at some point in the future, are you all looking at trying to do reuse of rockets such as what SpaceX does? Yes, uh, this first stage that I commented on, that's going to be the first stage for the A330, and then it's going to be the first stage for the, for the later medium launcher. It has a seven-engine configuration, and so it will have a, a, a single center engine. And so that configuration is compatible with, uh, with the relanding, where you know, after you burn the first stage and you come back to land, it's, the stage is very light comparatively. And so you really want to be able to light one single engine and have that steer you down to a propulsive landing. And so, yes, we are thinking about that, and we're building in the capability to do uh, reuse later in that development. We'll start out just, you know, with a, with a um, expendable version, and then we will we'll bring in the reuse later is the plan. We'll take another question from social media. In response to the viewing map of the eastern seaboard, Paul from Twitter asks, which direction should one be looking? <laughs> You'd be generally looking southeast. So, you know, we launch on a southeast uh, azimuth uh, to get to that 51 degree inclination orbit plane. All right, thank you. Let's see, I have a question for Kurt. If for some reason we can't launch tomorrow, what are the next or future opportunities? 
Yes, okay, so I mentioned we have a five-minute window, so the optimal launch time to get into that orbit plane, which is precessing over top of Wallops, when it gets over top of it, that's where we want to launch, is right into that plane. Uh, so we've, we've, we've allocated plus or minus two and a half minutes for that, and the, the, we have enough performance on the rocket to, to accommodate that, that two and a half uh, minute difference from the optimal launch time. And so that just gives us some, some wiggle room in terms of scheduling the actual liftoff time. Uh, if we can't go today, then we have an opportunity tomorrow. Uh, the way the orbit precesses around, it'll be uh, 23 and a half hours later. So it won't quite be 24 hours later. It'll be a little bit earlier tomorrow. So we'll get even less sleep if we <laughs> delay 24 hours. And uh, so I'll mention that, that, yeah, so 24 hours later uh, is no cargo refresh is my understanding, but uh, if we can't go the first and the second day, then we would stand down and we would refresh the cargo and then go for a later date. Great, thank you. There are no questions in the room at the moment. I'll just remind folks on the line, on the phone line, please use star one if you'd like to get into the queue to ask a question. Uh, and I think we'll go to social media next. Thank you. Mandelbrot on Twitter asks, why are we launching satellites for Japan, Uganda, and Zimbabwe? That's a great question. Um, so the Japanese Aerospace Exploration Agency, JAXA, um, they have a program called the BIRDS program. This is the fifth one of those, pro of those uh, missions. And, and the goal of this program is to um, help non-spaceferry nations to, you know, to get their first step into spaceflight um, and really you know, use that as a starting point to build upon. Um, so it's a great uh, program, you know, and these students that are working on these satellites are extremely excited, um, and it's, it's just a great way to get them involved in spaceflight. Great, thanks. I think we have one more question in the room. Good afternoon, Jim Jenkins from Richmond, Virginia. This question is for Heidi, and it's mainly for the Red Wire team. How, how will it be possible to accomplish all the components related to cellular metabolism as you 3D print uh, cellular tissue, uh, just, not just in general, but especially in zero gravity? Yeah, that, that's a fantastic question, and I can give you a partial answer, and I would say um, you can also follow up with the Redwire team afterwards. I know they're here as well. Um, so there's, there are a lot of components that are involved in bio, biofabrication, which is um, what the biofabrication facility is looking at. Um, so in addition to um, cartilage, they need cells, they need blood vessels, um, they need uh, you know, lots of different systems to interact correctly. And so part of the purpose of the biofabrication facility is to see how they can get all of those components to interact in a way that it can stand up to, you know, to the effects of gravity when those um, tissues are returned from space. Um, so, you know, I look at biofabrication facility um, as a stepping stone to help us understand what we know and what we don't know and what we need to figure out in order to make this a, you know, a viable option for um, being able to bioprint human tissues and human organs down the line. Thank you. I think we have time for maybe two or three more questions. Uh, and I actu actually, I have one for Jeff. How have you gotten the word out to people to ensure boats and planes don't interrupt the launch? I'm sorry, say that again. That's a great question. I didn't, I, I, I really, I didn't. Okay, how have you gotten the word out to people to ensure boats and planes don't interrupt the launch? Oh, yes. Um, we we uh, orchestrate, a, it's, we've got surveillance assets that, um, 
both uh, for, for surface vessels and, and vessels um, or airplanes. We work with the FAA to, to close off the corridor that runs right, right through Wallops. Actually, we have a, a Victor Airway that runs right, right past Wallops. It's like the I-95 in the air that goes, goes north and south. So we have to work with the FAA to clear those areas. So we've got those reservations in for that clearance. And, and from a, a, a surface area, we, we put in uh, uh, vacates uh, <laughs> The, the Navy controls the, the ops areas out in the ocean, so we have to uh, reserve space out in the ocean for that. And so we reserve ops areas, but the, the, the closer in areas, we actually put boats out there. We work with the uh, Coast Guard. We work with the Virginia Marine Police. We work with local Chincoteague uh, boaters to, to go to areas that, that kind of outlie or hazard areas to, to, to have um, boaters that may be potentially hitting those areas to tell them to warn them to go around our area. So we, we work with a lot of local boaters, the, uh, the government, uh, you know, with the Coast Guard and, and, and many of the, uh, the, uh, the Navy and, and uh, the FAA. So with a lot of coordination goes on to uh, surveil the area around Wallace because the number one goal for NASA is to launch, you know, safely without protecting people and property. So that's the number one goal and we put a lot of time and a lot of effort into to that coordination. Great, thank, thank you. you. Let's see, we'll go to social media, and I think this will be our last question. Bob Fullerton from Facebook asks, are fog or winds a concern for tomorrow? Fog, fog or winds. Oh, absolutely. Well, yeah, from the weather report, we, we are a little concerned with, with the fog in the morning. With Again, with the change in the seasons, we have a lot of low-lying clouds and a lot of fog. So, indeed, we are. Uh, we show an 80% chance of uh, being able to launch at 20% that we show as a, viol a potential violation is indeed the low clouds in the fog. So the wind, not a problem. We actually want the winds to come in to try to blow the, blow the fog out, but no winds are our concern. Great, thank you. And thank you once again to all of our panelists, Joel Montalbano, Heidi Paris, Steve Krein, Kurt Eberly, Ted Mercer, and Jeff Reddish for taking time out of your busy pre-launch schedules to talk to us about this important mission. Thank you to the media and our viewers for your interest in this mission and the important science, research, and technology demonstrations that it will enable aboard the space station. NASA TV coverage begins tomorrow, Sunday, November 6th at 5.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time for liftoff at 5.50 a.m. Stay tuned to nasa.gov slash Northrop Grumman for launch updates. If you're in the local area and hoping to see the launch, note that the Wallops Visitor Center will open at 3.30 a.m. Viewers in the Mid-Atlantic also may have an opportunity to see it depending on their location and the weather. And don't forget to set your clocks back one hour. <laughs> go Antares, go Cygnus, go science. Thank you. <laughs>